0: Good morning, my name is Tim Riley. I'm a former atheist who believed that all of this Christian belief stuff was ridiculous. And I did all that I could to argue with and ridicule people who believed in Jesus. But today I stand here as the lead pastor of this church and I wanna explain why what we talk about today hijacked my eternity, brought me into a personal and passionate relationship with Jesus Christ. Welcome to Church of the Valley on Easter, Today, we celebrate the most important event in all of human history, one that has been spoken about ever since it happened, and for some, define their reality, and for others, they may believe it to be a wives' tale that didn't actually happen. We at Church of the Valley, we open the Bible, and we explain the scriptures as they're, as, as they're known as best we can, pointing to the fact that this entire book points to the life, death, and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ. While many read the Bible as two different stories of what seems like almost two different gods, we as Christians believe that this entire book points to our one God in three persons known as our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Today we're going to attempt to cover an entire chapter of the Bible, 32 verses in under 32 minutes, so let's see if while preaching on the miracle of the resurrection, another miracle can take place. Turn with me to Acts chapter 26, and we're going to begin in verse 1. Here's what it says. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. All right, we need to give a bit of context because Paul is pretty much the one that the book of Acts follows primarily from chapter 9 on. Paul is an apostle. He's known as a sent one, someone who Jesus has shown himself to after Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus chose to proclaim the gospel, the good news of grace, through Paul to all of the area that he is within. Paul, who had been arrested for causing riots by his proclaiming that Jesus is God— He had been in prison for two years at this point and had been passed around from government to government where he had opportunities to plead his case. But he did not do this just to be found innocent. He did it as much as he wanted to be able to share the gospel with those who were attempting to try him for the crime of insurrection. Paul was now before a king, King Agrippa. Actually, King Agrippa King Agrippa II, who had succeeded his father, who had a bit more of an understanding of the Jewish customs and traditions that other government officials had experienced or knew anything about. Paul had been sent to King Agrippa from the governor of the, prophet, the province named Festus. So what we're about to read is Paul providing his defense and testimony of what he knows to be true because of what he has experienced what he has read, and what he understands. So here we go, verse two. King Agrippa, Paul said, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Paul had experienced others judging him. Without understanding his background or the customs that he kept, when he was a very religious Jew. Verse four, the Jewish people all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God had promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. Paul, previous to this, was a Pharisee, one of the most religious types of people of the day. A Pharisee lived a pious or religious life that it's abstained from things considered bad and did what was considered good, usually for all to see, to show off one's religion before men. Paul was the best of the best, and his reputation preceded him as the best of the Jewish Pharisees. And yet something changed. His ideology, his methodology, and his priorities changed. Because what we will see is even though he still loved and served God, his devotion was identified in a person who prior to something life-altering happening to him, he believed that all of these things about Jesus were blasphemous. Here's what he says in verse 7. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. The Jews believe that God would redeem his people and raise the dead, which is ironic because Paul is on trial for claiming that God did what they had hoped that he'd do, but it was in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? So Paul is pointing out that this was a Jewish belief, that God would rescue his people and raise the dead to life. But what a great question. Paul was referring to the fact that those who were accustomed to the Hebrew scriptures, or as we know them, the Old Testament, it spoke often about the resurrection from the dead, either clearly or in a veiled way. And Agrippa was also very connected to who were known as the Sadducees of the day. A Sadducee shared much of their methodology with Pharisees, but had a differing emphasis and theology in particular when it came to the resurrection of the dead, because for a Sadducee, resurrection was a no-go. And Paul knew this. He knew the influence of the Sadducees would be the one that would have turned him off to this idea that Jesus, the one that Paul was now pledging allegiance to, had physically risen from the dead. Or at least that's what those who had become Jesus freaks believed. For you and I today, I wonder if the same question applies. Do we think it is too far-fetched that God can raise the dead, or really what this day in every year signifies, can God be resurrected? Friday, we celebrated the day that Jesus traded his life for sinners like us. He willingly went to the cross, taking on the wrath of God for sin, and instead of everyone having no way to be in relationship with God because of what sin had earned us, which is death, Jesus took that death upon himself. But today we celebrate again the miraculous and supernatural event that God did not stay dead, but was raised to life. Defeating the hold that sin had on mankind, death had been defeated, and you and I now can stand forgiven before God. Not because of our effort, not because of our ability to earn, but because of God's gracious love for his creation found in Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection. Paul then goes on to defend his new belief that Jesus was God with skin and why. Here's what he says in verse nine. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem on the authority of the chief priests. I put many of the Lord's people in prison and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Wow. Paul is making a very compelling argument because it's not as if he had a natural inclination towards Jesus. He was an enemy of all that Jesus represented. But the irony was that Jesus was the fulfillment of, of the God that Paul previously believed he was serving by being so religious. The reality is that a witness that has every reason to be against a person who then speaks in favor of that person has one of the most compelling arguments for that person. So let me give you an example. Imagine uh, myself myself and my wife, the Rileys, Aaron and I, are driving onto campus. And while we're driving onto campus, maybe we see Mark and Bianca Frederick. And as they're driving onto campus, we're driving, and all of a sudden, as I pull into the driveway, they pull into the driveway, and we run into each other. Now, the insurance comp- or the, the police come out, and they ask about what happened, and you've got the four of us there, and we're all standing there. And I say, you know what? It was Mark who hit me. And then Mark looks at me and goes, nah, Tim hit me. And then my wife goes, no, actually, Mark ran into Tim. And then we look at Bianca, Mark's wife, and Bianca goes, actually, Mark ran into Tim. Whose witness are we going to listen to? Well, we're probably going to listen to Bianca's. Now, Mark and Bianca would never do that. They'd, one, never lie, and they would never run into us, I hope. But the reality is that Bianca's testimony would mean so much more. Why? Because she had more to lose by testifying about this. And Paul the Apostle, who was continuously trying to have Christians put in jail or murdered, all of a sudden switched teams. All of a sudden changed his wording. He changed what he was saying. Why? Because of what he experienced and saw. Verse 12. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of all the chief priests about noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's, it, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? Paul, before he was an apostle He didn't believe that Jesus was actually God with skin. But what a wonderful question to be asked. Who are you, Lord? So many people believe in something greater than themselves today. In fact, I think it is the supernatural or generally a natural inclination not to just assume that we all ended up here on this planet in this time period by accident or by randomness. But what if we were wonderfully and creatively made? And what if God actually has a plan for yours and my life? And what if we get to walk in the will of the Father? And what if even when we take detours from God's ideal, God graciously and lovingly is still able to redeem even our mistakes and field trips from God's will for our lives? What if? So who are you, Lord? May be what many upon many wonder right now. And since you got invited to a Christian church and while we're reading the Bible, you probably know where Paul is going to go with the story and what we as a church community believe with all of our hearts. Verse 15, the middle of it. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant, as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus not only miraculously comes to Paul in this bright light and vision after his resurrection, but appoints Paul to his service to preach and proclaim the good news. That God came to us, died for us, and rose again victorious so that we could have our sins forgiven. Are you kidding me? This is good news. This is the best news. But only if you realize that you're in need of forgiveness. We live in a day and age where everyone subjectively believes that they aren't that bad. But the Bible written by God himself through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and chosen people to document God's very words and will points to a different worldview than that. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul the Apostle writes, being brought along by the Holy Spirit, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Crazy thing about the word all in the original language of Greek in which this new statement, I'm sorry, the New Testament was written is this, that all means all, every last one of us. We all have sinned. We all have missed the bullseye, not just by uh, uh, doing doing the things that we do wrong, but by not doing all the right things that we ought to do. And so this is pretty terrible news. If you don't have Christ as your defense, because as the book of Romans also says in chapter six, verse 23, the wages of sin... Is death. This is what our sin affords us. Each one of us will experience death of a loved one, of people we know well, of acquaintances. Death is coming, and it's unfortunately a fact of this natural life, and yet we read the rest of that verse. Here's what it says. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You and I, We're offered eternal life by God, through God, and for God. We can be made righteous. Now that word righteous, it means to have right standing before God. But the difference in Christianity than any other religion is that our right standing with God is not because we did nothing wrong or we did everything right. It's because Jesus did nothing wrong and did everything right. And he has gifted us his perfect record when we believe in him and submit our lives to him. Turn with me to John chapter 3, verse 16. You probably don't even need to turn there because it's the most well-known verse in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have, what's those two words? Have eternal life. The most popular verse in all of the Bible. It points to eternal life. This phrase that gets thrown around a lot at funerals, but rarely do we take stock of its importance when our life seems to be without conflict. Eternal life is something that the Son of God, Jesus, defines later on in the book of John. Here's what he says in John chapter 17, verse three. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You want eternal life? You want this life that God offers? Don't try harder to sin less. Don't attempt to clean yourself up. Bend a knee, submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus. Eternal life is to know God through his son. And to know Jesus is to love Jesus because while we were still sinners, Christ died in our place and we love him back. Not by being a better person, But being a sanctified and holy person, which doesn't come through our effort, but it comes solely by God's grace. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, in fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Church, I, I need you to hear this because some of you maybe don't do church as often as others, but this is something we preach all of the time. And I want you to be able to hear this. We cannot earn our salvation. Our salvation, our right standing with God, our righteousness, our justification, all of that is through the gift of the cross and validated by the resurrection. But our response, once we embrace the love of God, is that we can love God back when we fully understand the cost that our sin took to pay off. Jesus's death on the cross paid our debt in full. His resurrection is our receipt. So let's get back to Acts chapter 26, verse 19. Here's what it says. So then, King Agrippa, Paul is continuing to say, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, and then to those in Jerusalem and all of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Paul did not take this miraculous experience as one to shrug off or to take lightly. Paul testifies that this began his turning around from his turning his back on Christ, who wholeheartedly started to serve him with all that Paul was. First to those in Damascus, who knew him as this religious Pharisee, then to those in Jerusalem and all of Judea, and he began to proclaim and testify to what he had seen and heard. He then was focused on those who were Gentiles, those who were not raised in the Jewish bloodline or faith, but those too who God wanted to rescue and redeem and make them his people using Paul's message of the gospel. Look at this phrase. He says, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. I love this statement because it points out more than just intellectual change of mind or acknowledgement, which many treat repentance as. See, repentance or to repent means to change direction mentally, spiritually, and physically. To repent means to change direction mentally physically, spiritually, and physically. We have mentally, when we repent, chosen to no longer entertain that sin that held us captive and we gave more attention to than God. Spiritually, we turn from that sin and turn to the gospel of Jesus to find our identity and worth in him rather than that sin that has become what we want and what we obsess over. And lastly, when we repent, we change direction physically. Our lives demonstrate what we truly believe. And so Paul hopes that people not only would acknowledge that God exists once or twice a year, but that we as the people of God, who God has drawn to himself through his loving kindness, would repent, change direction mentally, spiritually, and physically, and live as forgiven children of God who have received grace and in turn can demonstrate that grace to others. Let's see how Paul concludes his defense of the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 21, this is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Paul reminds King Agrippa why he was arrested, why he was taken into custody, and then testifies to remind all that would hear him that all that he has said is not some new revelation or some new story, but is the completion of what we know as the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures that Moses and the prophets spoke of a long time ago, was happening as this was, and had just happened as this is being said that Christ was the fulfillment of the covenant between God and his people and that suffering would take place, but God would raise Jesus to life and the good news of the gospel would be preached among the nations. Verse 24, at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. "'You are out of your mind, Paul,' he shouted. "'Your great learning is driving you insane.'" I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that only, not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Paul, one of the most devout learners of his time period, was being questioned about this new message that he was proclaiming and being accused of being insane in the membrane. Yet Paul points again to the fact that this was the story and plan all along. And when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, God opened Paul's eyes and heart to who God really is, Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord of lords and King of kings. So this resurrection that Paul proclaims is the most important message he can offer to anyone. And he is pointing this out to King Agrippa with the hope that not only would he understand and bow a knee to the real King of kings, but all who would hear Paul's testimony Would also do the same. Verse 30. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they had left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This chapter ends with a reminder that Paul did not have to be imprisoned but that he wanted to preach to those high and low about the good news of the gospel, the validation of this good news and the resurrection from the dead in Jesus Christ and for the forgiveness of our sins that God offers through faith and trust in his only son, Jesus. See, if the gospel is true, church, if we really believe it, if we really have had our sins forgiven and have the passion and ability to repent, then what Paul does here and throughout his missionary journeys are not that far-fetched. In fact, they make a ton of sense. If you and I meet the resurrected Jesus and he speaks to us and he offers forgiveness for our sins and he calls us to his service, why would we not give up our lives and follow him as he offers us eternal life? For the millions upon millions of people who have trusted Jesus Christ, they have not joined a cult or a religion or a club. But to truly understand what it means to be found in Christ is to have inherited eternal life. And when you have, you'll never, ever be the same. If you would bow a knee and receive Christ, you no longer live with the temporal as your priority. There is another life. There is a better life to look forward to. And with these new priorities in this life, we get to be image bearers and witnesses of God's grace. I grew up in a pretty agnostic home. My mom passed away when I was eight years old, and my father didn't really like religion as he would say it, because when he was a young boy, his mom and dad divorced, and the Catholic church that they were attending at the time kicked him and his mom out of that church. With that in mind, he lived the next 70 years or so absolutely indifferent to religion and the idea of God being personal and living among us. Before he died, my dad and I had many conversations about my faith when I became a Christian at the age of 20. There were times where I thought I may be getting through to him. But what I realized was it didn't matter if my words or my persuasive arguments for the resurrection and I have plenty, were perfect or on point. But unless God draws him, it doesn't matter how compelling I am or if I say the right words, here is what I know. I believe in Jesus Christ because he claimed he was going to die and rise again. And he actually did it. I believe that the Bible is true. Because Jesus lived and he died and he rose again. He said he was going to do it and then he actually did it. How do I know that that's true? Because history paints a picture of those who firsthand saw, touched, and talked with the risen Jesus. And they were so utterly convinced that he was a resurrected Jesus. That they were willing to go to death preaching that Jesus was God and that he had died and risen from the dead. See, people will die for what they believe in all the time. That isn't what I'm pointing out here. People will die for what they believe to be true, but no one will die for what they know is not true. And those disciples, those, some who actually saw Jesus physically die on the cross and give up his spirit as the Bible teaches... They walked with him. They knew that for a fact he had died and he was put in the grave and his body was lifeless and he could not move and there was no life in him. But then three days later came. And their lives, the disciples, those who saw Jesus alive after he died, their lives demonstrated their belief. They went to death preaching and proclaiming that Jesus is alive. And so we sit or stand here 2,000 years later dealing with a pandemic and a whole lot more that has happened specifically in this past year. And I'd pose the same question that Paul posed when he saw the vision on the road to Damascus. Who are you, Lord? Friends and family, you may be here because this is what you do on Easter. You may be here because of the invitation of a friend or family member. But I want to tell you that the answer to that question, who are you, Lord, is Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He is King. He is Savior. He is God. And we have an invitation to follow him, to change direction, to stop living life for ourselves, and to receive this eternal life that is offered to us to those who would by faith repent and trust Christ as our sufficiency. The good news of the gospel is that we don't work our way or earn anything, but Jesus worked his way by living, to us by living the life that we were unable to live, by dying the death that we all ought to die. And because of our sin and that and him taking on death, he then physically rose from the dead. Proving he is who he says that he is. Validating that we can be who he says we are. Which is forgiven children of the God most high. I spent nearly a decade defending the resurrection of Jesus. I spoke all over the country and in Canada and I traveled and I gave historical evidence for the proof of Jesus' bodily, physical resurrection And some people scoffed at me. Some people attempted to debate me. Some people wanted to know more about it. And some people repented and changed direction and began their relationship with God in God's only son, Jesus Christ. So don't take my word for it. There are far better speakers or apologists than me who can defend the resurrection better than I can. But my hope isn't just that you'd believe that Jesus rose. But Let me conclude with what the Apostle John writes in his letter known as 1 John. We'll be in chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. See, believing in Jesus isn't about acknowledgement, but transformation. And I trust if God has brought you here today to hear this message and to believe in his one and only son, then you will experience transformation. If you truly bow a knee and trust Christ as your sole means of right standing before God. Friends, if you understand, if you believe and are willing to trust God through repenting of your sin and bowing your knee to Jesus as the Lord of your life, I invite you to let us know about your newfound commitment. We're a church that wants to celebrate with you that for some reason God decided to draw you to himself today. And we value what we call discipleship relationships. It's, It's like having someone in your life who mentors and holds you accountable and teaches you the scriptures and walks with you. So we would love to encourage you to join a community group where a bunch of people get together and they talk about this and they pray for one another, Or we'd encourage you to find a person within our congregation, someone that we know loves the Lord and is maybe a little farther ahead than you and could help you in your newfound relationship with God. We're a community and family of God who helps one another in living with the gospel as our central priority and filter for this life. So that's what I've got. And I would encourage you, as you have heard these words, that if you are struck by them, I on purpose didn't use a bunch of inflection in my voice, I didn't yell, I didn't. I don't want you to emotionally engage with this. I want you, in your mind and your heart, to come to the same conclusion that Jesus is who he says that he is. That we come here and join on Sundays, but this is just a small version of what we do as a church because we're in each other's lives throughout the week. And with that in mind, we're going to do a time of offering and prayer. And offering is where people have decided that they want to give a percentage of what they make, which we believe the Lord is the one who blesses us with our incomes, and we give a percentage back. Now listen, if you're a guest, this isn't for you. God doesn't need a tip. This is for those who consider Church of the Valley their home, and they're growing to look more like Jesus, and they're being taught who Christ is through the word, and they want to give to the work of the ministry. And so I'm going to pray for us, and I want to pray for the offering. If people you want to give, you can do that online, or you can mail a check to the church. And for those that are in person, they can drop something in the box. But I want to pray for us. And I want to pray for you today, if you've made a commitment to Jesus, I want to pray that not only would you not keep that to yourself, and not only that you wouldn't just be excited about believing, but through the faith that God has given you to repent and change direction, that you would understand and celebrate the fact that God is in the transforming business. And so buckle up, God's going to change you and draw you and make you to look more like his son, Jesus, as you put into practice and obey his word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to preach your gospel and truth on this day that represents the resurrection of your son. And I thank you that as we gather today, either online, virtually, or in person, and throughout this world, there are tons and thousands and maybe millions of churches that are preaching the truth of the gospel that Lord, you died in our place and you rose from the dead. So I ask today as we gather that you would use whatever offering that people decide to give for the glory of your name, that we would continue to preach your gospel, not just on Easter, but every day, every service, every ministry meeting, and that the good news of the gospel, that Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves, that we didn't earn this relationship with you, Lord, but by your grace, you drew us to yourself. May that be something that spurs us on to love others, because we are just one beggar showing other beggars where the food's at. We love you, Lord, and we pray that you would be exalted and magnified, that Jesus's name would be lifted above all else today and through our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.